listening to Thulos, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Thulos offers a scriptural daily bread for God's household and explores servant leadership as an Orthodox Christian. I'm Holly Benton, your host and executive director for the Orthodox Christian Leadership Initiative, and with me today is my co-host, Father Timothy Lowe, former rector at the Tontour Ecumenical Institute in Jerusalem. A good Pentecost to you, Father Timothy. Well, thank you, Holly, and likewise to yourself. So, Father, many of the conversations around leadership, even servant leadership, focus on how to get people involved and engaged, how to appreciate the diversity of ideas and opinions in the group, and how to work towards consensus, not even necessarily agreement within a diverse and opinionated group. But when it comes to the gospel, even when it is read during the liturgy, all voices are silenced. We are expected to hold our tongue and attend to the wisdom of the one Lord and Master. I understand you're working on a study of the Gospel of Matthew, and as scripture, even in its development of characters, or perhaps non-development of characters because they hardly speak, the idea of the one voice crying out in the wilderness is paramount. It's not a cacophony of many voices of many opinions, but one true, wise, and single life-giving voice proclaiming the good news. So are we supposed to understand that the Lord isn't interested in my opinions and ideas, that the Lord isn't serving the consensus of the group he has invited to his table? (laughs) Okay, you know I have to chuckle because uh, the answer is absolutely no interest whatsoever. (laughs) I mean, look at the Gospel of Matthew. He calls... We respond or we don't respond. It's not, well, do I, don't I? No, no. He calls, he initiates, we respond, yes or no. And I think when he drags them up to the mountain and what we call the Sermon on the Mount, I prefer to call it the Mountain of Instruction because that's what it is. But it is a mountain. It's an image of the Sinai mountain. He sits, he talks. And of course, often he says, you have heard it said, But I say to you, blah, 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 and it goes on to give his teaching about the true meaning of the law. My point is there is no discussion. There is no dialogue. In fact, if you read the entire Gospel of Matthew, you can see. Peter tried it once, for example, in Matthew 16, after he got all puffed up about being called Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Christ tries to instruct them about the cross about the suffering Messiah, about the events of Jerusalem, which, of course, Peter then takes it upon himself to reject it first and one by rebuking Christ. And then Christ calls him Satanas and says, get thee behind me. He's a stumbling block. Peter's a stumbling block. So, yes, it's about understanding. It's about listening. The gospel does allow the disciples to ask questions when they're dull and don't understand. You know, the parable of the sower, reading in Matthew, there's a couple instances where they take him off to the side and say, now, now what, what did you mean? And then he goes on as an expansion. Any dialogue with Christ is not on equal terms, okay? Yes, he's not interested in our ideas. It's simply sit. And now, this is 21st century, and I would say that we are more weak-minded, Holly. Therefore, we should sit because we have access to pen, paper, iPads, whatnot, voice recorders, take the bloody notes. Because we will not remember. I'm projecting my aged memory on, and its inability to retain anything short term. So I have to like look at it again and again. So yes, he is not interested. And that should not cause us a crisis. 
because he's the one with the authoritative voice from the mountain. And it continues. So, yeah, sorry. Now, what happens, and I just had an interesting story with a colleague of mine about a parish council meeting where the issue is consensus. And there is one member of the council meeting who absolutely would not listen to the consensus. They vote on an issue, majority, blah, 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 and he was saying it's a moral ethical issue. So it's not about consensus, which in theory he's correct. See, it has nothing to do about consensus, okay? But he would not accept that his, perhaps, moralism was flawed because it had nothing to do with loving your neighbor and whatnot. Needless to say, uh, he had a choice either to follow or to resign. He chose to resign. No. Righteous indignation and whatnot. Consensus is important, but it can be wrong. There can be the voice in the wilderness from the one guy, or he can be a crackpot. I like one statement from a professor, a friend of mine. He said, there's a fine line between nonconformity and crackpottery. <laughs> and sometimes we're veering into the crack pottery area as opposed to the voice in the wilderness. So let's stick with scripture. Let's stick with that voice. And that way we will end up being on firm ground. So as we will be celebrating All Saints, the day that this podcast has released, you suggested that we hearken to Matthew 27 verses 50 through 54 for today's reading. These verses provide an exciting Steven Spielberg moment in the culmination of Christ's crucifixion. So here it is, and Jesus cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So the Lord had indeed acted with his right hand of power. And we can see that the Lord has dominion over everything from the temple to the earth, both over the living and the dead. And they're all reacting to this moment, perhaps not even really understanding the impact of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Oh, Holly, you know, obviously, as you just said, it's a climactic moment. Everything goes to this moment. So I think I would like to just do a short exegetical exercise for our listeners. It will be a little bit of a lesson on perhaps how to read and interpret the gospel text by paying attention to detail. Why? Because I'm of the opinion, starting with myself, and which I'm trying to repent of, that we often read quickly and don't pay attention to detail, which basically means we don't really respect the intelligence or the brilliance of the writer. And seeing the, the depth and the breadth and how systematically he has brought us the Gospel of Matthew to this point, to this climax, and how he framed it. Because Matthew does something that the other Gospel writers don't do in this story. He adds a few things, and then we can say, well, what is the meaning of those things? And as we've briefly talked, it is all about understanding how we see, how we are taught, how we hear, and therefore, of course, then what we do. Since this is really the end of the story, 
the translation that you read from, I don't know which, which version are you using, by the way? The RSV. So I wanted to compliment you on the translation you chose. Because, for example, this one, I think it's a new RSV. It, it will say, and Christ breathed his last. And you said, yielded up his spirit. That's the correct translation. But a lot of English translations just say, he breathed his last, which is just the translation of Mark. So what does this mean? And even the Greek doesn't even say his spirit. It just says he yielded the spirit, that which animates his body. Okay, and let's not philosophize what allows him to breathe. And it's that moment that triggers the rest. So this is the apocalyptic moment. The idea of yielding is a voluntary action. Matthew, time and again, wants to stress the voluntary nature of everything that is happening. Christ is voluntarily going to the voluntarily going up to Jerusalem. He's teaching us. He's teaching us this point. Okay, this is the will of God, and that He must accept it. So even here at the end, He just sort of tweaks it by saying He Himself makes the choice to yield up his spirit, which is an odd way of thinking, because that's not how life works, okay? We don't get to choose the time of our death unless we take our own death, which, as my neighbor down the street once said about her adolescence, when she thought about it, she said, not a good idea to make a permanent solution to a temporary problem, <laughs> okay? Just hold off. There are other solutions. Avoid the permanent one, especially in your adolescence when life seems can be at its worst. So anyways, that's point one of, of just paying attention to detail and how it relates to the whole movement of Matthew's gospel. That's why I mentioned Peter and his rejection of the cross, because that's going to continue. And Peter stands for us. And we're going to see how that issue affects the others, that we really do not want the cross. We don't want a crucified Messiah because that reverberates. Let's talk about the reverberation because this is where we as Christians systematically fail and then functionally deny the gospel message. Because by reverberation, something starts here and begins to sort of filter down, filter down. So Christ breathes, gives up his spirit. This triggers the events that you just read the shaking of the earth. There's so many examples of the earth shaking and quaking and trembling and whatnot, and Christ talks about it even in Matthew about the second coming, how the sun will darken and the stars will fall. Matthew is portraying this simple event. It reverberates into an apocalyptic event. Now, I'm for one, this is not a historical event, okay? I mean, I don't want to scandalize anyone, but Matthew wants to convey, teach us, we are not seeing it with visible eyes, it is an apocalyptic event, as if the world is coming to an end. To see how Matthew continues through his artistic imagery, reflection of other biblical passages that have led up to this moment, so we can hear and understand that Christ has voluntarily given up his life on the cross. The earth quakes, things get dark, the tombs shatter, some... This is also only in Matthew. This is why this is an interesting passage. Mark doesn't mention, no, they just say the earthquakes and the centurion makes his confession of faith. No, 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 no. He wants to see that the foundations of the earth are shaking, the tombs are being shattered, and the dead are being raised. Not general dead. Some 
of the bodies of the saints. And for Matthew, this can only reflect the righteous ones that have suffered, that have suffered like the suffering Messiah for the message, which was always a, a message against corruption and injustice and unrighteousness and wherever it's found, namely kings and religion. What is odd about this passage is that, and they appeared to people in Jerusalem, but notice it doesn't say it's happening right now. It happens after Jesus is raised from the dead. The point is, something I wish we could all understand is that since we're celebrating all saints this day, is that they are functional witnesses of the message of the gospel. We can get into their stories and whatnot, but they serve to function to witness. The whole point of Pentecost, you could never get it from what we read in church. Because we read the first 10, 11 verses of Acts 2. People, you need to continue reading chapter 2 and chapter 3. Because the idea of the universal message that goes out is for everyone now. It's not the private ownership property of a specific ethnic religious group. Okay, It's an apocalyptic event that everybody is hearing it in their own language and the invitation. When Peter gets up to begin to preach, he calls them a corrupt and evil generation. And that, all of a sudden, they're quickened okay, with the message. And then they say, what shall we do? This apocalyptic moment of the earthquake and the witness gets enhanced by the witness of the centurion. And notice Matthew does something else here where Mark, it's centurion single sees this. No, and the others with him. Now, if you want to understand the magnitude, these are the same people who just recently mocked him and then crucified him. So for them to confess, oh, truly he was the son of God. Now, Orthodox then won't start thinking, oh, what does this mean? The divine logos, blah, 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 blah. No, Matthew's not interested in that at all. This confession of the Son of God, which happens from time to time by various people in Matthew, Christ never accepts this designation. When he talks about himself, it's Son of Man. Because if you talk about Son of God in the context Roman imperial life, the Son of God is always the emperor. He's the adopted one. He is the functional Son of God. For them to confess Jesus as the Son of God means to put aside the whole Roman reality and everything. It's gone. Okay? It's gone. People need to understand that their particular confession has echoes, reverberates, shakes, okay? Shakes, seismic activity mm -hmm. for their life because it has implications for what they think, how they understand, what they do. The crafting of these few verses that we can just gloss over, we can historicize them. Bodies of the saints arose and, and now Jesus will descend into hell and, and Christ is risen, right? But there's so much more. All of this, we see how our understanding of Jesus as the crucified one, voluntary, as if we confess him, son of God, as in not our Caesar, 
a Messiah that is not a, a world ruler, a Messiah who's not going to solve our climate changes or our politics or bring peace between Ukraine and Russia and every other place. It's not going to happen. But the implication, and this is what I want our hearers to understand as we celebrate the lives of the saints who stand over and against us. Because if this mere clay, see, this mere adama, this mere fleshliness, and others can live the gospel life, then we not just can, we must. So I see the saints, if we celebrate them, as apocalyptic as everything else we've just read, as witnesses to the race that must be run, and it is possible, and therefore we have no excuse. I'm not interested in all the miraculous stories because that makes them exceptional, not like the norm. And I want to go backwards and dumb them down, okay, and saying this isn't just, uh, you know, something that we can pick or choose. This is intrinsic on what we must do, understand, and live. And therefore, it's not voluntary. We are called, make the decision, yes or no. We are taught make the decision, hear it and implement, but you cannot have your cake and eat it too. Now we could go on about what I would call the earth shaking, shattering, breaking of our understanding that the gospel does. And that's what this image is about. The world is not in the same place. Functionally, we look around, it's the same place. It's not changing, it's getting darker. We're not talking about the clouds. We're talking about the human reality. It's getting darker and more desperate and more unsolvable. So the apocalyptic reality of our world is there. Is it the end of the world? I don't know. To quote our beloved professor, he says, God does not come at the end of the world. When God appears, it is the end. He's going to appear. And when he does, he comes, first of all, in his power, in his glory, and to judge, and to hold us accountable. So as we begin to celebrate the All Saints, it is this message, the same message of the cross, universally inviting all in. And the centurion and his buddies are the first in terms of witnessing the event. You and I are not going to get to see the event. For us, it's a proclamation. It's a hearing. We are entering into that, believing it, and then, of course, shaping our life after it. So, okay, I've talked. It's your turn. I think you've said it all. <laughs> I've, I've been silenced. I'm meant to listen and to hearken to the voice and respond, just like you said, Father. Oh, God help us, Holly. To me, it's a difficult time. It's just not a challenge to our personal faith because ultimately I think it's a corporate faith. But we must hear and learn. That's right. God willing, our ears will be open and our feet will start moving. Yes, and again, if I could just exhort people to pay attention to the details and the brilliant literary craft of the, of the Gospels. These people were brilliant. Thank you so much, Father Tim. I appreciate the exegesis and the attention to detail. You are most welcome. We're trying. <laughs>